As you know, we've been studying about um, Islam and particularly about their strategy to change the world and to make the whole world an Ummah, a nation of Islam. As we've been looking at that, we have talked about several factors of, of their historical plan, about what's happened in history. We've also spoken about Dawah, which is their missionary effort. Dawah is one of those words that very few Christians in the Western world have heard or know very much about. The next study we're going to have is about jihad. And jihad is one of those words that almost all people in the Western world have heard and they know and they they believe they have an understanding of what it is. But today we're going to be talking about that as one of the three prongs that Islam uses in their attempt to make the whole world Islamic. The word jihad. Now, if you were to speak to a Muslim person, particularly an Arab, and uh, use the word jihad, they would invariably say to you, you Americans or you people from the West don't really understand what jihad says means. You will say it means holy war. Jihad does not mean holy war. And I have had many, many Muslims tell me that. Jihad does not mean holy war. Well, they're, they're partially right on that. They're partially right. The term jihad has at its roots meaning struggle or striving. The Muslim almanac defines jihad as striving. This is a Quranic concept that uh, includes the idea of a just war, as well as other forms of striving by which the individual or the community extends the practice of Islam and the safety for Muslims. So in reality, jihad might be a partial meaning, have a partial meaning, holy war. But it does mean struggle and striving. Now, in the Quran, we find that Muhammad has said there is a greater jihad and there is a lesser jihad. And the greater jihad was more or less an internal struggle, a battle that a Muslim individual would have to be sure that nothing would keep them away from their faith in, in Islam, would protect them and help them. And so it is much like the idea that we would have of a young Christian man trying to protect himself from the forces of evil that are striving to bring him away from their faith. And so a Muslim individual will have much of the same idea. They will have a jihad, a struggle, a striving, a desire to remain true to their particular faith. For instance, a young man walking down the street sees a beautiful girl. He has lust in his life and his heart. And, and uh, then he has to have a jihad in his own life to, to fight his own internal battle to keep him from, from being disobedient to a God and, and leaving the faith of, um, of Islam. So jihad does carry with it this idea of an internal struggle. It was interesting to me that Muhammad called that the greater jihad. And so he may have put more emphasis upon that. Now, the, the lesser jihad, though, is very well defined, and it's defined as protecting the community, protecting the people, protecting um, the, the nation that has accepted Islam, and if necessary, and quite often, to fight to protect it and to keep it right. So in reality, jihad does very definitely teach an aspect of holy war. We do have an interesting quote from Ayatollah Khomeini one time when he was talking about jihad. 
And he says, those who know nothing of Islam pretend that Islam counsels against war. Those who say this are witless. Islam says, kill all the believers just as they would kill you. Islam said, kill them, put them to the sword and scatter their armies. Islam says, kill in the service of Allah. Whatever good there is exists thanks to the sword and the shadow of the sword. People cannot be made obedient except by the sword. The sword is the key to paradise, which can only be opened by holy warriors. Now, we're aware that Khomeini might not have been your average, normal, moderate Muslim, but he is basically saying jihad is a part of, of Islamic thought. It, it does mean that they can battle and they can have war. It's always been interesting to me that when you look at the flag of Saudi Arabia, you have a great big sword there. And if, if, if Islam does not have war as a very important part of who they are, I'm not sure why a sword would be one of the symbols that they would use. Another so-called 20th century saint, the, the Mullah Muhammad Taqi Sabazari, has also said this, Allah has promised that the day will come when the whole of mankind will live under the banner of Islam, when the sign of the crescent, the symbol of Muhammad, will be supreme everywhere. But the day must be hastened through our jihad, through our readiness to offer our lives and to shed the unclean blood of those who do not see the light brought from the heavens by Muhammad. The satanic rulers must be brought down and must be put to death. Now, there, there is jihad, and what is fascinating to me is that in jihad, there are rules of jihad. Now, these rules of jihad vary a little bit. Number one, if, if they are fighting against the infidels, if they are fighting against the Christians or the Jews, then there is a tremendous amount of freedom that they have to kill and to destroy. But if they are fighting against Muslims, then they have certain limitations which they can do. For instance, one author, a contemporary author, said, if Muslims fight against one another, the fugitive and the wounded may not be dispatched or killed. Muslim prisoners may not be executed or enslaved. And women and children may not be intentionally killed or imprisoned. Imprisoned male Muslims must be released once the fighting or the danger of continued fighting ends. Furthermore, the property of Muslims may not be taken as spoils and any property must be returned after the creation, at the cessation of fighting. Even means of mass destruction, such as flamethrowers or flooding, may not be used except absolutely necessary. So there are very definite rules. These rules do not always apply when there is a jihad against a, a Western country, but when there is a war against their own people, there are rules. Now, one of the problems about jihad is that many cases and many times what we do see is that uh, different Muslim groups will deny the validity of the other Muslim group and therefore they can declare a jihad against a Muslim group as a defense of what they would consider to be true Islam. Thus, there is jihad that is taking place against each other. Now, as I said before, on one side it says that jihad is holy war. Others will say it really isn't holy war. Now, I would imagine that the most often asked question of me, particularly today, as I go from various church or organization or club to club, they will ask me, now, Brother Wagner, we happen to know that uh, several people that are Muslims, they're moderate Muslims, they're very good people, 
And they would never say that they should kill or destroy. Is there not the possibility that today that there's only a radical number of, of Muslims that is quite limited as opposed to the moderate Muslims that do not accept jihad as a, as a force to be reckoned with? Well, I think that's a, a fairly good argument, but I think that if you look over the situation today in Islam, you become pretty much convinced of the fact that Islam today has as a strategy the destruction and the conversion of the world, and particularly the Western world, to Islam. Now, I know a lot of moderate Muslims in the United States, and I have never yet seen one of them coming out in the street early in the morning, waving that sword over their head, saying, kill the Christians, kill the Christians. You, you just don't see that. And there are several reasons behind that, and, and the reasons behind it, strangely enough, have to do with theology and have to do with philosophy as much as they have to do with just the practical aspects of life. For instance, there is in reality two different faces of Islam. One fascinating book that was written talks about the two faces of Islam. On one side, you have the face which is, which is a moderate face. On the other side, you have that extreme face. Now, when I was growing up in New Mexico in the 1930s, uh, I had the family name of Wagner. If you want to look at that in the German term, it's Wagner. And we were a German family. We, we lived in, in that part of the country. And then all of a sudden, the people in America looked over at Europe and they said, Europe is a continent that's being taken over by the Germans, by the Nazis. The Germans are bad. And thus, we had a lot of people come along and say, well, here's the Wagner family. I wonder whether or not they are trying to aid and help Hitler in their conquest of, of the world. Well, in reality, they, they didn't say that very often. But what was happening was it was not the German people as such, but it was the people that had control of the society, that had control of the governmental apparatus. And they were the ones that were bent on changing the world for Nazism. And we have exactly the same situation today. There are a lot of moderate Muslim people that are very good people and wonderful people. But if you look at the apparatus, if you look at Islam as a whole, you suddenly discover that in reality, Islam is in the hands of a radical part of the, of the religion, and they get their teachings from the uh, Quran, and consequently, I think that they are dangerous for us in the world today. So, there, there are really two faces of, of jihad. And probably one of the more important things that, that we'll have in these lectures is this idea. Number one, you've got to realize that, um, that that part of the Quran was written in the country of, I mean, excuse me, in the city of Mecca. And part of the Quran was written in the city of Medina. And you've got to understand the background that took place. Actually, about 80% of the Quran was written in Mecca and 20% was written in Medina. Now, it's not continuous. You can't say that the first 80% was in Medina and the last 20, uh, and first 80% was in Mecca and the last 20% in Medina. But what that we do have is that there, any good Muslim will know what is the Meccan Quran and what is the Medina Quran. Well, when you come to the Meccan Quran, you have to remember that when Islam began, when Muhammad began his faith, he was rejected by the Meccan people. The Meccans did not accept it. 
they they continue to adhere to their uh, concept of 360 gods. They did not accept what he was saying. And so Muhammad, trying to find a basis from which to operate, began to look towards the Christians and the Jews, feeling, feeling that the Christians and the Jews believed in one God, and because they believed in one God and he believed in one God, that it would be possible to to bring them together, absorb them into his new religion, and that they would be able to develop and form a, a faith where all three of them could work together. Now, we're aware that this is a very simplistic explanation of this, but still, this was one of the ideas that I believe that Muhammad had, to bring the Jews and the Christians in. Thus, when you look at the Medina Quran, you're going to see, so, excuse me, when you look at the Meccan Quran, the first part that was written, you see some very interesting verses. That there is no com- uh, compulsion in religion, says one verse. It also has a tendency to say, be friends with the Christians. Um, be, be good to the Christians. Let the Christians be your friends. And, and even is very positive about the eternal um, place for Christians and Jews. So, so the Mechian Quran has a tendency to be positive about the Christians. Then what happened was Muhammad was forced out of Mecca. He went to Medina. And in Medina, he became the military um, head. He became the head of the state. He had authority. He had power. And he no longer needed the Christians and the Jews. And thus we find in the Medina Quran, kill the Christians and the Jews cut off their arms and their legs, and and various other verses of Scripture that basically say, do away with the infidels. The infidels should die. They have no right to live. So what has happened is that there is a, a different outlook. The one says Christians and Jews particularly are are to become friends. The other one says, kill them. And the reason is, is because there was a different need in Muhammad's life at that particular point. Now, we also know that any revelation that comes later in Islam is more important than an earlier revelation. For instance, we know that there are four books of the Bible. I mean, four books that they accept. And uh, one of those is the uh, uh, the book of... Um, the first book of uh, Moses, the five books of Moses, and then the Psalms, and then the Injil, which is a gospel. And then we have the Quran. But each one that comes later is more important than an earlier one. Thus, they will come and say, if you look closely at the uh, Meccan and the Medina Quran, the Medina Quran is more important than is the Meccan Quran. Therefore, the idea of killing is is more dominant at this point. This is one of the reasons why, on one side, they can profess to say Islam is a religion of peace, Islam is a religion where we, we do everything we can to help one another. On the other side, they can kill 1.2 million Armenians in Turkey and not really feel bad about it, how they can kill 800,000 uh, Christians in Sudan how they can attack in various other places of the world and and kill Christians and have people that are in leadership positions say Christians and Jews should be killed and they have no problem with it because there are two faces of Islam. Now, you've got to also look and see that whenever Islam begins to grow in political power or in numbers in a particular country, 
their attitude to those people that they are living with changes. There was a very fine article written one time by the chief of police um, of the federal government of Australia. And he basically said that when there is a country that has only 2 or 3% Muslims, then their attitude is one of, of acceptance of the society that they're in. It's an attitude of humility. They're there, thankful they can be there. But as that percentage grows, they become more and more aggressive. I talked to one man one time, and I said, what percentage of a state do you have to have before that state becomes totally Muslim? They said 51%. So whenever you run into a larger number of Muslims, then jihad begins to become a, a fact of life in that particular area. Now, there are some, some questions I'd like for us to think about. And uh, these questions are, are ones dealing with jihad in our present-day society. One, is jihad defined the same by Muslims in different parts of the world? I would have to say that this is, is no. Again, dealing primarily on how strong the Muslim community is and how they look at the people with whom they, they, with, with whom they are living. Geography does become a determining factor in one's understanding of jihad. Uh, I submit that the Muslims in the West will be far less um, desirous of seeing armed conflict and jihad as let's say those that live in the heart country of Islam, there would be much, much more about that. Another question we have to ask, is Islam prepared to offer equal rights to others as it is prepared to exist side by side with other uh, ideologies? Is it prepared to offer equal rights? My studies have pretty well shown that these equal rights are never offered whenever Islam is in a majority. Whenever Islam is not in the majority, and when they have a significant minority of the population, they will demand equal rights. But once they get the majority, they will not um, be open towards equal rights. At this point, I'd like to um, interject a very interesting little pamphlet that a friend of mine has written. His name is Sam Solomon. Sam happened to be a, a former Muslim. He has uh, uh, a degree in law. He is working today in England. And he had been working together with several of the members of the European Parliament. And what they have been trying to do is to say this. Is it possible for there to be a coming together of Muslims in, the, in a Western society so that they can work together, live together, live side by side, or does this clash of civilization mean that there is no way that they can live together? This has been a, an interesting theme, and it is one theme that the Parliament of Europe has been trying to answer and been trying to look at. Now then, there are a large number of Europeans who really feel like Islam is not a threat to the West. These individuals, and many of them are political leaders, feel as if only a small number of Muslims are fanatics, are radicals, and that the mass of Islamic people do not agree with them and do not want to agree with them. And that in reality, what they need to do from a political point of view in Europe 
is to draw on those that are moderates and then to bring the, these moderate ones into the decision-making processes as far as government is concerned. They've been working at that. There was not too long ago a, uh, a moderate Muslim leader that appeared before the United States Senate. And again, the Senate was trying to find whether or not there could be a coming together of the moderates, uh, Muslims with, with the Western society, and that we could find a formula for them being able to live together. The question was asked of this person, are there radical mosques in the United States? And his answer was, yes, there are. And they said, what percentage of the mosques in the United States are radical? And he said, 80%. And the, the senators were a little bit taken back by that. 80% you say are radical. Why is that? And they said, the reason behind that is, is that these radical mosques receive their financing and their support from Saudi Arabia and to get this support, financial support and other support, they have to adhere to the Wahhabi set of ideas. And Wahhabi is far more the radical set. Consequently, if they want to become um, a, a full-fledged mosque with help coming from Saudi Arabia, they have to become a radical mosque. Consequently, there are not nearly as many moderate mosques as you might think. Not very long ago, there was a legal case that took place in a mosque in Detroit. It was a moderate mosque that existed. And in this moderate mosque, they had attempted to contextualize Islam into a uh, Christian environment. So they were doing such outlandish things as meeting on Sunday. They had um, chairs in the, in, the, in the mosque. Uh, much of the things that they were doing were, were contextualized to the Western society. And so what happened was a group of more radical Muslims came in. They took over the mosque. They had a sit-down strike. They wouldn't let the moderates have it until the next thing you knew there was a legal case from the more fundamentalists against the moderates. And the next thing you know that the whole mosque was taken over by the radicals and they were successful. So the question that the politicians, particularly in Germany, are asking, are there different views of jihad? If there is a different view of jihad, if there is a different view of using force to convert people to Islam, is it not possible that we in the European Parliament can work with these more moderates, develop a formula whereby we can work with the moderates in the hopes that more or less the radicals will be isolated will be set off to the side and we can develop a formula whereby Christians and Muslims can live together, where jihad's not a problem. So, Sam Solomon, working together with uh, some of the European Parliament leaders, put together what they call a proposed charter of Muslim understanding. And what they were saying is this, that we believe that if we can define jihad in a moderate way, and if we can define some of the more radical tendencies of Islam in a moderate way, that we can find a way for us to be able to live together. So they put together this, this uh, a proposed charter of Muslim understanding. And they said it is hoped that the Muslim leaders would agree that whosoever deviates from the path of this charter would have gone on an Islamic path and such a person would be regarded a outcast from the religion of Islam, therefore a non-Muslim. 
Well, they put this together and they put it in as a uh, recommendation to the parliament. The parliament was um, fairly, fairly understanding. And in this charter that they put, they said this, we commit to the fostering and the promotion of peaceful coexistence across Europe in the spirit of one brotherhood amongst all humanity, treating all as equals in accordance with the principles proclaimed in the Charter of the United Nations, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the United Nations International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And they were trying to say, we can take these various statements of civil political rights, combine them together with moderate Islam, and find a solution. I had an interesting experience dealing with this one time. I was in Morocco, and my job was to um, teach pastors how to live in a society where there is persecution. I had worked a lot in Eastern Europe with the Russian church and Romanian church and the Bulgarian church and the construction of small house groups and trying to help them to live where, where the government was against them. And so I went to Morocco one time, and I spent Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday speaking to about 20 Moroccan pastors who were living and working and proclaiming the gospel in Morocco. Then on Thursday, I went down to another city. It was Fez. And then on Friday, as I was there in Fez, something very strange happened in Morocco, and that was that every citizen of Morocco who was a Christian was put into prison. There was a, a sweep all across the country, and they had names of those that had contact with the Arab World Ministries, those that had contact with missionaries. They had a, a large number of names. They had about seven, 800 names of people, and they arrested all of them, and they put them into jail. As I was in Fez, we even had a bookstore in Fez, and we had a young man and, and his wife, and he was a, a head of the uh, bookstore, and she she was expecting a child about seven months pregnant, and, and they both were arrested and put into jail. Well, that was very disturbing to me, and we were trying to find a way to help him out. And it was one of those God-type experiences where, where the uh, missionary that was there in Fez said, I've got to go down to the jail. This was Friday night, and I've got to take blankets and food. He says, in the jails in Morocco, they don't have blankets. They don't have anywhere to sleep except on the... Uh, stone floor, and they had nothing to eat. So he went down there to the jail and offered to give them these things. And the man that was at the policeman said, no, no, they have everything they need. Go home. We can't let them out. So he, the missionary came on back, and he sat down, and we started to have a prayer meeting. And we prayed for about four or five hours for them. And about the last part of the prayer, there was a knock on the door. We went to the door, and who was standing there but the, the uh, pregnant lady? And uh, she was there, and she'd been crying the whole time and said, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, my husband's still in jail. But they released her. And so we did have the opportunity of, of talking with her and praying with her. But the next day, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention flew in to Morocco, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jimmy Draper, and we told him of the problem. And so we decided that the best way for us to proceed was to go to the ambassador the American ambassador to Morocco, who was a Christian. So we went to him, and we told him of these six, 700 people that had been put into jail. And his response was very simply, all right, no problem. 
What we will do is we will go to the um, head of the Department uh, of Interior and we will talk to them. But we need to have names, knowing where they're at, and as much information as we can. So we gather this information together, and we went to see the head of the Department of the Interior of Morocco. And then we'll forget the discussion we had with them as we told them these people have been put into jail only because they were Christians. And the statement was made, do you realize that there is a United Nations statement that says that you cannot persecute people because of their religion and their religious belief? And uh, we said, do you realize Morocco has also been a signatory to that? They have signed this statement. What are you going to do? I never will forget his answer because he said, oh, that was our foreign department. Our foreign department can do anything they want. We're the Department of Interior. We do what we want. They will stay in jail. Well, actually, we did get them out uh, very soon thereafter. But it was fascinating for me to see how they could divide this and say the foreign department is one thing, the Department of Interior is another. What I thought I might do is just read a few of these different statements to see how it was that there was a Western organization trying to find some way that the the moderate Muslims and the Christians could live together so that we could form a, a unity. This is one of the statements that they make. Article number one. Will we, respect, we will respect all other non-Muslim religions in word and deed by issuing a clear fatwa with an immediate effect prohibiting the use of force and violence of any kind against the followers of any or all non-Muslim religions. The use of any force in any form for whatever grievance, felt or actual, in the practice of our religion will be forbidden. Forbidding the killing or targeting of any civilian or civil institutions in Islamic and non-Islamic countries as a way of addressing any of our grievances. Article number two. We will respect and honor all civilizations, cultures, and traditions of other nations and people, irrespective of their ethnic and religious backgrounds. This will be achieved by introducing a clear educational program throughout all Islamic institutions and outlets, as well as in organizing special meetings to address youth. I'm not reading all of the statements on this, just the the more key ones. In the spirit of the saying that there be no compulsion in religion, we commit to the upholding of the value of freedom, and particular freedom of belief and expression. There will be no recrimination against any Muslim or non-Muslim who chooses to change, discard, or attempt uh, or adopt another faith, be it within the House of Islam or anyone outside. Another statement here is, The basis of legitimacy of Islamic acts of terror and their perpetual violence is the authority that they obtain from being sanctioned by religious leaders. These sanctioning statements are called fatwas. And um, then it says that fatwas would not be allowed to be given if they spoke about violence against individuals or institutions. And fatwas could only be delivered by those groups that would sign on to this charter. Another one has to do with jihad, our theme right now. As peace-loving and peace-promoting people, domiciled in Europe and equally believing that Islam is a religion of peace that promotes cooperation and collaboration of all people, the notion and all teachings of violent physical jihad 
is to be regarded as invalid, inappropriate, and irrelevant, hence inapplicable. Therefore, all Quranic jihad verses encouraging physical violence, whether implicit or explicit or any other quotations from any Islamic source, be that Sunnah or the sayings of the Prophet or that of the learned scholars of leaders of jihad at any given time or place are to be regarded as inapplicable, invalid, and non-Islamic. Article number six. Based on the acceptance of equality of all mankind and brotherhood of all freedom and sanctity of human life, that all acts of terrorism are prohibited, shunned, and outlawed. And it goes on and it gives various other uh, statements concerning the different uh, ways that, that Islam and Christianity have violent opposition with each other. Article 10 does nothing more than comes along and goes through the Quran and lists all of the Quranic verses that deal with violence against non-Muslims. For instance, those who believe fight in the cause of Allah and those who disbelieve fight in the cause of Tagwat. So fight you against the friends of Satan, even feeble indeed in the, uh, in the plot of Satan. Um, let those believers who sell his life for this world and the hereafter fight in the cause of Allah and whosoever fights in the cause of Allah and is killed or gets victory, he shall bestow on him great reward. Um, the recompense for those who wage war against Allah and his messengers to do mischief in the land is only that they shall be killed or crucified or their hands and their feet be cut off on the opposite side or to be exiled from the land. That is their disgrace in this world, and the true torment is theirs in the hereafter. And so one verse after the other, after the other, after the other is given that talk about violence. And what this charter says is if, if we want to live together in, in a European context where we can have peace and freedom with each other, the Muslim entities should accept this charter. Well, you know what happened. They presented this charter to the various leaders of, of the Islamic community in the countries of Western Europe, and it was totally rejected, immediately rejected. They said, we can't possibly accept these restrictions on our interpretation of the Quran because we already have our interpretations. We know what they say, and what you're trying to get us to say is in opposition to what we believe, and thus this charter has gone absolutely nowhere. And not only that, but any charter that is going to attempt to, to bring about a more peace-loving form of Islam is undoubtedly going to meet with, with failure. The reason? Jihad. The reason? They, they, there, is, there is within the core of Islam um, aggression, fighting, battling, and killing. And those individuals that try to say this is not the case, I think simply do not understand. So question number two that I was asking, Islam, is Islam prepared to offer equal rights to others? And is, and is it prepared to exist side by side with other ideologies? I don't think it is. I don't think that Islam has the capability of existing side by side. So what does that do? That leaves us in a situation where the class of civilizations continues on and where we have to have the problem of saying, okay, if this is the case, how do we deal with it? 
Are Islam, and question number three, are Islam and democracy opposed to each other or can Islam exist in a democracy? There is really no democracy in the Arab world that would ensure action in simple words concerning human rights. Now, if you recall the war that has just recently more or less come to an end in Iraq, one of the statements that uh, the President Bush made many times was, the, one of the reasons why we are in Iraq, and probably the main reason, after the weapons of mass destruction were not found, the main reason was the establishment of a democracy in an Arab country, in the hopes that once Iraq could develop a real working democracy, that that would then spread to other countries of the Middle East, and by a democracy spreading, then there would be a whole change in outlook and political structure in the Middle East. I must admit that I think that uh, President Bush was on the right track when he was trying to to further this in the Middle East. I don't think he had a chance in the world of succeeding. I think that it, it simply was not going to happen, and 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 it would not take place. You've got to also understand that there are very, very few words in the Arabic language that are foreign words. Arabs protect their language about the same way as the French protect their language. You know that in France that there are certain foreign words that are prohibited and cannot be used, such as the word jumbo or blitzkrieg and a lot of other words. And in fact, if you're working for a government agency in France and you use one of these foreign words, then you have to pay a fine. It is not allowed. Well, it's the same way in Arabic. They do not want any foreign words. And once there is a foreign word, everybody knows that it's a foreign word. And one of the foreign words that they have is the word democracy. They use that as a foreign word, democracy. And once a Muslim sees that, they immediately realize this is a foreign word. It is a foreign concept. It is not what we want. We do not believe in rule or government by the people. We believe in rule and government by God. So democracy does not really have much of a chance of being successful, I think, in a Muslim context. There was um, one lady who was sympathetic to Islam but expressed deep concern about the political status of um, Islamic countries' rights. Most Muslim states are ruled by bloody and repressive dictatorships. She's a Muslim, by the way. That far from satisfying the imperative of social justice exemplified by the Prophet's career seem to be incapable of granting even the most basic human rights to their citizens. Official uh, murders, arbitrary imprisonment in all forms can be found in Muslim states from Morocco to Malaysia. So in answering this third question, are Islam and democracy opposed to each other or can Islam exist in a democracy? I would say yes, they are opposed and no, Islam cannot exist within a democracy. Of course, that brings us up to the point of saying, what about the future? What about the time when Belgium, for instance, would begin to be a, a Islamic state? What would happen then? I think that the democratic principles would fall by the wayside and it would become a theocracy. Question number four. 
Is Islam ready to publicly condemn acts of violence done in the name of jihad? After the attack of the World Trade Center in New York, there was a worldwide outcry against the use of violence, except in Muslim countries, where people not only celebrated the attack, but also praised those who committed the infamous deeds. Um, the Western world continues to wait for condemnation of violence and of terror. There is a large silence by, from the Muslims whenever violence does occur. Every once in a while, there may be one imam or, or one Muslim leader that will make a statement that could be interpreted as condemning the violence. But by and large, whenever violent acts do occur, there is very little that is said against it. Why? Because the Quran teaches violent jihad. Now, there are four C's of Christian Muslim engagement. And the first C is increased contact. Increased contact. There, there has been constant contact between the Muslim world and the Western world. This contact has come from explorers, has come from army people, from England as they have taken over these Muslim countries. It goes all the way back to the time of the Crusades and the time when uh, the uh, Muslim uh, soldiers went up and took over North Africans and the other areas. There's always been contact. And, and I think this increased contact is going to happen. It used to be, too, that most people in the Western world did not know a Muslim, had never seen a Muslim. The Muslims were were people of another culture from a far-off country, but now suddenly they're all around us. They're everywhere we look. Again, a part of their immigration strategy, bringing people in, establishing footholds and um, beachheads, and they are around us now. So there is going to be increased contact between uh, the Muslims and the Western world. Now, civil libertarians will come and they will say, Whenever we have this contact, we have to have community and understanding. I was the head of the Baptist outreach for Muslims in Europe. And uh, it was fascinating to me to, to work with various Baptist leaders of Europe. And we found out that there, there was quite a, a different opinion on how we can best work with Muslims. There was one group of people that said, and I must admit I was one of those, that one of the tasks, and only one of the tasks, but one of the tasks that we have is to help bring these Muslims to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We wanted to work with the Muslims. We wanted to help them to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and we felt like this was a wonderful opportunity. Then there was another group, and they said, no, we don't want to work with them. We don't want to try to bring them to our faith. We don't want to make them change their faith. What we want to do is we want to help them socially. We want to give them places to live. We want to give them a food when there's needed. We want to help them out. We want to be brothers and sisters to the Muslims. And uh, there was a, a, a small disagreement on that. I believe that we should have done one, social action, and two, evangelization, both. Do both of them side by side with each other. But there has been the civil libertarians that have come and said, no, our only job, our only task is to work with them and to help them. There was a period of time in, in England 
where there were a large number of Christian churches that were were declining and they were actually dying. And so the Muslims, in an attempt to try, I mean, the Christians who had these churches that were no longer operable in an attempt to try to help the Muslims, were giving Christian churches to the Muslims to help them out. Now, I felt like that was good and that was fine and everything like that. But at the same time, we as Baptists came in several instances and we went to the Luther, I mean, to the Episcopal churches and said, may we buy one of these churches that's going out? No, you can't buy it, but we'll give it to the Muslims. You see, the civil libertarians were trying to say, we've got to find ways to continue to work with them. And this is a situation that we have today in Europe. And the politicians continue to hope that there can be a coming together, that there can be a working together. But I have spoken with many of the politicians, and and they've become more and more convinced that this is not going to be the case. They are not going to be able to make that change. One uh, man that's a very close friend of mine who is living under a death threat right now in Germany, I'll talk about him a little bit later on, who is a, a journalist who's written a lot of books on Islam and living under, uh, living under this death threat, uh, was approached one time by one of the German political leaders. And what it was, he was the governor of one of the states of Germany. And uh, he said to this man, he said, uh, I've been invited to speak at the opening of the largest mosque in Germany. It was a very large mosque in the center of Germany, fairly close to Darmstadt. And he says, I've been invited to speak at this mosque. And by the way, this mosque had a great big sign out in front that said uh, the common market of the European Union had given $4 million to help build this thing. They, we give money for, to build their mosque. We never give money to build a church. But uh, he'd been asked to speak at this church. And so this man who was the governor of the state spoke to my friend and said, what shall I say? What can I do? How should I act? Here I've been asked to speak at a mosque. Uh, There are Muslims that are members of of my state. They're voters. What should I do? And so my friend says, well, you should ask, who was the mosque named after? And this governor said, well, what do you mean? Who is a mosque named after? And my friend says, most of the mosques in Europe, and particularly in Germany, are named after radical leaders of Islam who were well known for killing Christians. And so they named their mosque after those people that have killed Christians. And the governor said, well, I, I don't know what the name of this mosque is. I'll find out. So he found out, got back with my friend and told him. And my friend says, well, yeah. He was the leader that um, led the Muslims into Constantinople or into Istanbul and caused a total uh, killing field of all the Christians. Raped their women, killed the children, killed everybody. So it was a terrible slaughter. And so the mosque that this man was speaking at was then named after the one that had killed all of these Christians. And the politician says, well, what do I do? And so my friend says, well... I don't see how you can really, really speak to him. Well, what did the politician do? He gave a very, very nice talk. We welcomed him. Everything's good. And he went ahead and and said, no problems, no problems. Because he was still trying to say, we can work together. And that's where they are at this point. The first C is increased contact. The second C is um, 
is uh, increased conflict, increased conflict. Now, we're speaking a little bit about jihad today. I made a study about seven years ago of the different wars that were taking place in the world, and I defined a war as a as a armed conflict where more than 1,000 people were killed. And there were ways to be able to find out what these are. And I discovered that there were 26, uh, excuse me, 36 wars that had taken place within the last five years. And of these 36 wars, I discovered that 27 of them were Islam against somebody. And you've got to remember that Islam has bloody borders. They, they, they have fought with everybody. For instance, they're in, in Israel, their opponent is the Jews. In Chechnya, their opponent are the Orthodox Christians in Russia. In the Philippines, their, their opponents are the Philippine government, which is Catholic. In Nigeria, northern Nigeria, there is a, a, a war going on. And their, um, the opponents are the Protestant Christians. In Bosnia, there's a war going on, and the opponents are the Orthodox uh, Christians. In Indonesia, there's a war going on, and there are Christians that are being killed. Pakistan, the opponents are the Christians. China, the Chinese government. In India, uh, particularly in Kashmir, the enemy are the Hindus. Uh, In Sudan, the enemy are the Christians. In Egypt... (laughs) The enemy are the tourists. You know, they just kill a lot of these tourists that come, and a lot more tourists are killed than most people realize. Algeria, the enemy are moderate Muslims. In the United States, civilians at the World Trade Center. So you see that that, that, that when you begin having closer contact, there begins to be much more uh, uh, conflict. The third C that we have is really increased conquest. Increased conquest. As this conflict takes place, almost invariably it is Islam against somebody else. Islam attacking somebody else. And again, they say that there are reasons behind that. Very seldom do you see the others attacking. That might be an exception in India today where uh, the the Hindus are are attacking the Muslims. But there is increased uh, conquest. Uh, one author says, the conquerors would transform the vanquished empire, but in time, the empires would change and become urbanized until each in its turn conquered by new nomadic Muslim tribes. The changes the conquerors brought, religious, political, social, have often been driven by the concept of jihad. So jihad is alive, and as soon as Muslims begin to get a certain, a certain strength, they begin to have more and more conquest. Then the fourth C is condescension. Condescension. An article in the Muslim World League Journal written by uh, one man said this, Jihad is not a defensive war only, but a war waged against unjust regimes. It should be pointed out that the war in this case is waged against the leaders and their forces and not against the people ruled by such regimes. People should be freed from the unjust regimes and their influence so that they can freely believe in Allah, not only in peace but also in war. Islam prohibits murder, terrorism, kidnapping, and hijacking when carried out against civilians. Whoever commissions such violence is considered a murderer in Islam and is to be punished by the Islamic State. 
Islam did not spread by the sword, as is taught in the West. The state may have spread by the sword, which is always the case, but the people freely accepted Islam. So what they were saying is, we have a right to fight against the state. We have a right to fight against any state that is in opposition to Islam. And in fighting against that state, we can do whatever we we basically need to do. And then the assumption is that once the state is defeated, then the next thing that you find is that the people will then convert to Islam. They do have what they call the Code of Omar. And the Code of Omar was, was given at the time when the Muslims overran Jerusalem. And in the Code of Omar, they give certain rights to uh, Christians and to Jews. For you see that Christians and the Jews in Islamic thinking have a special place. They are still called people of the book, primarily because they accept three of the books, or, or two or three of the books, uh, three or four of the books that are proclaimed to be holy by Islam. And so they say that they are people of the book. And so they say that you're not supposed to kill the Muslims, other Christians, you're supposed to let them continue to live, but they have to pay a tax. They cannot ride a horse when, when the Muslims ride a donkey, but they have to ride a donkey. And a large number of different rules and law that really put the Christians into subjection. So they, they do allow a certain amount of, of tolerance in letting these people go ahead and, and live. Well, jihad. Is jihad a danger to us in the world today? I would say very definitely if you are living in a part of the world where the Muslims are beginning to get anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of the population, there will be some aggressive actions taking place. One sociologist wrote and said, anytime you have a minority group with 12 or 13 percent, there is a danger of a conflict taking place. I was on a um, radio station one time, and they used to always ask me to come and to give some talks on the radio station. I used to do it, and I made a statement one time on the radio station. And when I made this statement, the the man was, was taken back, and he said, did you really mean to say that? And I said, well, yes, I think I did. And then I wasn't asked on from that particular point, but I made a statement, and I said, Europe is in danger of a civil war taking place. And and he, he just couldn't believe that. And what I was saying is, in the future it could be. I had just come back from Europe when I made that statement, and I knew of all that was taking place about the rebellion of the young people in France at that time. There were somewhere around 40,000 cars that were torched in France, primarily from Islamic young people against Westerners. In that time, there was tremendous upheaval, and, and, and the young people were, were all were fighting. And a lot of people said, well, this is because they're underprivileged. It's the underprivileged against the privileged. No, it was the Muslims against those that were non-Muslims. And what was happening was, was just practically total chaos. And so I believe that jihad is a reality and I believe that in some Christian areas where the Muslims begin to grow and grow in the percentage of the population, that armed conflict or uh, lesser jihad is a reality.